Good morning, everyone. This morning, we're going to be looking at a passage from 2 Corinthians chapter 5. So I invite you to turn with me at this time to the book of 2 Corinthians. And in a moment, uh, we'll read verses 6 through 10 from 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and a sermon that I've titled, Walking by Faith. Walking by Faith. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 6 through 10. Walking by Faith. Our focus this year here at Latham Bible Baptist Church has been on personal evangelism and soul winning. We're trying to stress the importance of living out our salvation day to day. So much of what we do as Christians ends up being limited to a church building. We, we dress up, we put on the clothes, we come, we sing the songs, we open our Bibles, we follow along as it's being preached from. Uh, but we limit so much of our lives as Christians to just what happens within the walls of this church, and that needs to change. God has called us to be beacons of light in the world, which means that we need to be bringing God's truth with us everywhere that we go. God has given us a tremendous responsibility to share his truth with the world, and part of sharing God's truth involves living out God's truth in our own lives, whether personally in the, in, the, in the confines of our own home or publicly out in the world where God has led us to be. For the last several weeks, we've been focusing our attention on what our daily walk should be, how it should look like, how we as Christians should be living out our faith in the world. Whether we realize it or not, we are witnesses of God in our behavior and in our conduct, which means that we need to be incredibly careful. We need to be conscientious of how we act and how we react in all of life's situations. Personal evangelism doesn't just involve opening your mouth and sharing the gospel. It involves living the gospel. Some of the best witnessing you may do will be done without you even opening your mouth. How we behave, how we conduct ourselves as Christians can really go a long way to open the door and have us be able to present the gospel to people we never anticipated being able to present the gospel to. In many instances, the Lord has brought people to me personally asking about the gospel based on how they saw me conduct myself or how they saw me react to a specific situation in my life. And, and this is why it's so important that we walk by faith in this Christian life. It's not just for our own benefit. There is tremendous benefit for every believer that walks by faith, but it's also to the benefit of others. Because the more people see us acting and behaving the right way as Christians, the more they're going to be inclined to know why. What's different about you that you can hold yourself together when the ground beneath your feet seems to be crumbling? How are you able to remain calm when everything around you seems to be incredibly chaotic? How are you at peace when by the world standards you should be losing your mind? The way we conduct ourselves will often lead unbelievers to come to us and ask us, what is it about you that allows you to remain calm, that allows you to be confident, that allows you to stay stable in the midst of the craziness that I see happening in your life? God opens these doors and we need to be ready 
to share the gospel, present his truth when that time comes. But getting to that point is often difficult because that means walking by faith and allowing our conduct and our behavior to show forth that we believe in Jesus Christ and we're living for him every single day. So it's so important for us as Christians to walk by faith in this Christian life because it's to benefit of many people around us. God opens doors at times when we least expect it. And we must always be ready to point people to the Savior. Naturally, the more that we're living like the Savior every day, the easier it is for us to share him with others. We don't have to go out of our comfort zone. We don't have to feel like we're speaking about something that is completely foreign to us. We don't have to struggle to figure out what to say or even how to say it. The more that we're striving in our own lives to live like Christ, it just naturally comes forth. It organically finds its way in every conversation. The more you're living like Christ, the more it'll come out all the time. Personal evangelism, though, it starts at home. And that is why in order for us to ever be successful in effectively sharing our faith and effectively soul winning, we need to make sure that we're actually practicing what we preach. We read in Philemon verse number six, it says that the communication of thy faith may become effectual by the acknowledging of every good thing that is in you in Christ Jesus. Now, my desire is that everyone here at Latham Bible Baptist Church would become effectual in communicating the gospel so that souls would be saved, so that God's kingdom would be advanced. Now, as we wrap up this series, and we're, we're wrapping it up today, next week we'll focus on mothers, uh, because if we don't, I'll have a whole bunch of you very upset with me. Um, but the week after that, we're going to look at start looking at a character sketch as we continue the same theme of personal evangelism and soul winning, but wrapping up here on, on how we should be living per se. But I want you to focus in on what the Bible has to say about believers walking by faith. So notice what the Bible says here in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verses 6 through 10. Therefore, we are always confident, knowing that whilst we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. We are confident, I say, and willing rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Wherefore we labor, that whether present or absent, we may be accepted of him. For we, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. Now at the time of the Apostle Paul writing this letter to the church of Corinth, he was facing death threats nearly every day. How many of you would like a death threat every single day? Some of us can't even handle a dirty look every other day. <laughs> Let alone death threats. People were trying to silence his preaching and doing everything they could to prevent the gospel going forth from the Apostle Paul. And as much as you might think that this would discourage him, I mean, this would probably discourage any one of us. If we're getting death threats every single day, we're thinking, you know what? Message received. I'm going to find a new line of work, something that's not as hostile towards everyone else that I come around, something that is going to, you know, maybe be a little more calm, a little more peaceful, something that's not going to cause the blood pressure to rise so high looking over my shoulder every moment if someone's coming at me. We'd probably try to do something else, but and as much as you thought that maybe it discouraged him, 
All it did was light a fire under the Apostle Paul to be even more passionate in his preaching. Turn back a few chapters with me. You're in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Turn back to chapter 1. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, maybe a page back, a few chapters previous. And I want you to notice what it says in chapter 1 of 2 Corinthians in verses 8 through 10. 2 Corinthians 1 and verses 8 through 10. He says, For we would not, brethren, have you ignorant of our trouble which came to us in Asia, that we were pressed out of measure above strength, insomuch that we despaired even of life. But we had the sentence of death in ourselves, that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God which raiseth the dead, who delivered us from so great a death, and doth deliver in whom we trust that he will yet deliver us. How awesome. Death threats all the time. And he says, you know what? It doesn't faze us one bit. Because we're trusting in the one who can raise the dead. So even if the enemy somehow prevails and silences the message by killing us, we're trusting that if the Lord continues and wants us to continue, that he's going to raise us right from the dead like he's done before. Or he's got some other plan for us. But either way, we've seen him deliver time and time again straight out of the, the jaws of death to continue preaching the gospel. And he says, rather than being discouraged, rather than hanging up our Bibles and saying, you know what, I'm going back and I'm just sticking with tent making. I'm taking this as a challenge to preach the gospel even harder. Challenge accepted. Guess what? All those stones that you threw at me, well, none of them hit their mark. Because I'm still alive and breathing. The Lord has preserved me, he says, and the Lord will continue to do so. And as long as he does so, the message and the mission is still the same. Go out and preach the gospel. And then notice, turn back to chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And notice what the Bible says in verses 7 through 12. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 7 through 12. He says, but we have this treasure, the gospel. We have this treasure in earthen vessels, human beings that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. You know what he's saying there? He's saying God has entrusted weak, frail human beings to deliver this message of the gospel that is so grand and glorious, the world has never seen anything like it before. And he says God has entrusted earthen vessels that will crumble but he says that the excellency of the power may be of God. Any glory that comes out of us, he says, is all going to be God's alone because nothing good can really come out of us on our own. But notice what he goes on to say in verses 8 through 12. He says, we are troubled on every side, yet not distressed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Cast down, but not destroyed. Always bearing about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our body. For we which live are always delivered unto death for Jesus' sake, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our mortal flesh. So then death worketh in us, but life in you. Over and over He's talking about how they are troubled on every side, that everywhere he goes, around every corner, 
There is a threat against him. There are people trying to silence the message of the gospel going forth. And he says, we're not cowering out this. We're not silencing our message. We're not even, you know, hanging up our Bibles and going home and relaxing in front of our television set and watching the ball game. He says, we are doubling down because we know that the cause that Jesus has called us to is far greater than anything else that is going to happen. So if we die in the process, praise the Lord, we've died doing what God has called us to do. But until that day comes, he says, we're going to be faithful and diligent to bring the message of the gospel to those that need it. Persecuted, he says, but not forsaken. Some people think that when they get a door slammed in their face, they've, been, they've suffered persecution. We don't know the first thing about persecution here in America. Christians are being persecuted today more than they've ever been persecuted throughout history. It's happening across the world and we, we seldom hear about it because a lot of times we don't want to hear about it. But Christians are being persecuted all over the world and the beauty of it is that many of them know that as much as they're being persecuted, they are not being forsaken by God. They may be cast down, but they're not destroyed. And they are living always to deliver the message of the gospel to those that need it. And as much as they're doing it, they're knowing that everything that they're doing and as many souls that's being touched by the gospel, that they know that the excellency of the power is completely of God and not of themselves. Paul is here telling us that he is suffering over and over and over again, not to discourage us from ever going out and sharing the gospel, but to encourage us to share the gospel, to walk by faith. Because when we're walking by sight, all we're seeing is the enemy around us. All we're seeing is the insults, is the, is, is the, the mocking and the ridicule and all the stones that are being hurled at us. But the reality of it is, he says, we're not walking by sight, we're walking by faith. The Lord is the one who has delivered us here. The Lord is the one who will deliver us all the way till the end. Just be faithful to walk according to what he's called you to do. Over and over, his life is in danger, he says. And this is the reality that he faced every single day. And the way he faced it was facing it head on like a good soldier for Jesus Christ. When you would have thought that he would have ran and hidden and saved his own skin, he doubled down and preached the gospel with even more passion. This was the attitude of a servant of Christ who wasn't afraid of heaven. I think so many of us act as if we're afraid of heaven. Is there anything about heaven that we should be afraid of? No, now, I'm not saying that we should have a death wish and go preach the gospel into a moving bus. But why are we acting as if we're afraid of the slightest bit of persecution? As I said earlier, we don't know the first thing about persecution here in America. So at best, we're getting silenced because of the fear of rejection. Paul certainly didn't have a death wish, but he understood that being a servant of Christ was going to come with certain challenges. And he counted it all worth it to share the gospel everywhere he went because everywhere he went, he knew there were people that needed to hear the gospel. Even when he was arrested for preaching the gospel, in his jail cell, he continued to share the gospel with inmates and with guards and with anyone that came by. To the point that he was just relishing the opportunity to have someone chained up next to him that couldn't leave. Hey, buddy, do I have a message for you? Oh, you got to go somewhere? Guess what? We're stuck here, bud. You're not going anywhere. You're going to listen to this message, whether you like it or not. What a tremendous testimony. I've wondered how often the same could be said of us. 
That regardless of our circumstances, would we still be faithful to serve Christ and to minister for his cause? Would we still be true to deliver the message of the gospel if we found ourselves in situations and circumstances that the Apostle Paul described himself being in? Are we the same at home, in church, at work, in school, or just out and about? This wasn't, this wasn't an act for the Apostle Paul. This wasn't just something that he was you know, trying to impress people with and then at home he'd just be a regular guy. This was his life. He was living out the gospel everywhere that he went. Many Christians today, we put on a spiritual robe when we come to church. And then we'll take them off almost as soon as our feet hit the pavement in the parking lot. Okay, I've done my, my Christian duty for today. I've come to church. Now it's time to take the coat off. This is the only time you're going to see me take my coat off in church. This feels weird. But we do this. The coat will come on for Sunday. We'll step into the building and we put on the Christian best. We'll look the part. We'll act the part while we're here. We'll sing the songs. We'll follow along. As the Bible's being preached, I've got to put this back on. I feel naked up here. You all are judging me. And then it comes off as soon as our feet hit the pavement. Because we've done our service. We've, we've done what God has asked us to do this week. And we can chalk it up as a job well done. Because we looked and acted the part while we were here within this building. There are two different people at church and at home. And there's, I think there's so much so of how we live our lives. We're, we're very much hypocritical in, in what we do and how we live. Because at home we're one way and then at church we're completely different. We, we live a, a life of hypocrisy. And if you don't see people in church, you'd never know that they go to church. Sometimes you see them in church and you're thinking, did you know this is a church? Did you just stumble in here by accident? Because I've seen how you are out in the world. And, and you never have this on. You never looked the part out there. And somehow you think because you threw on a nice coat and you put on a nice dress and you came to church that you're going to com completely fool everyone that, into believing that you're God's gift to humanity? Now, we shouldn't be judging people, but some of us act that way, don't we? Paul was arrested for preaching the gospel. And while awaiting his death, he said these words in Philippians 1.21, maybe a verse that most of you can quote. He said, For to me to live is Christ... And to die is gain. In other words, if he had the option to go back and to do things differently, because he said those words from a prison cell where he was awaiting his life sentence. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If he could go back and do things differently and chart a different course for his life that wouldn't end with him ending up in a jail cell where he can literally hear the blade being sharpened in the room next door that was going to chop off his head, he's saying, you know what? I'm definitely sticking to tent making. I'm definitely doing something different. I'm not ending up the same place where I ended up here where my life is literally hanging in the balance. Is that what he said? Do me a favor. Look to the person sitting next to you and say no. No. He said, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. He says, if I can go back and do everything exactly the same and end up in the same place that I am today, I do it all over again. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If following Christ was illegal, would there be enough evidence in our own lives to convict us? Some of us are acting as if it is illegal 
And we're doing our best to hide our devotion to Christ based on how we live Monday through Saturday. We don't want anyone to know. Paul knew that there was too much at stake to live like a hypocrite, and that is why he said this. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 16 through 18, he says, For which cause we faint not, but though our outward man perish, yet the inward man is renewed day by day. For our light affliction, I love that he calls it light affliction, right? I mean, he's literally receiving death threats all the time. He says, oh, it's not that big of a deal. Our light affliction. We wake up and if our knee pops in the morning, oh, I don't know if I can come to church today, guys. Man, this knee is killing me. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Paul was able to say this because he was walking by faith. And as a result, he gladly suffered in this world, knowing that there was a far greater reward awaiting him in the world to come. Now, in order for us to walk by faith, I want you to first of all notice that we must have a heavenly perspective. We must have a heavenly perspective. Now, I've spoken to plenty of people near the end of their lives, and what they often tell me is that they're ready to go to heaven. Believers, at least, will say, will say this. They're ready to go to heaven. Some of them have expressed just how tired they are of life here on earth. And they feel like they've lived long enough, they've seen all that there is to be seen, they've experienced all that there is to be experienced, and they are just ready to be at home resting with the Lord. They get tired of all the doctor's appointments. They get tired of, of all the medications and all the aches and all the pains. And they're ready for a life that is free from pain and sorrow. Amen. Hebrews 9.27 states, And as it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this the judgment. In other words, every one of us will experience death unless the Lord shall return in our lifetime. But death can come without notice. Death comes for all of us, and it's something that we cannot avoid. For the believer, death does not have to be something that we fear. None of us should fear death. None of you should be afraid of heaven if you truly know Jesus Christ as your Savior. Because death is the only means by which the Lord brings us to our eternal home in His presence unless He returns before that. And what a home it is! What a home it is! We have glimpses, just little glimpses here and there in the Bible of what heaven is, is, is like. And not a single person who has understood what the Bible says about heaven has thought, you know what? I'm not that impressed. What else you got, God? Because from what I'm seeing, heaven's lacking a little bit here and there. No one has thought that. That's why so many believers, when they get to the end of their life, they're thinking, Lord, just take me now. I'm ready. Because what they know of heaven to be true is that it is so much better than the best that this life has ever offered. And they're longing for that. None of us know when that day, when that day is going to come. But we know that when it does come, it is a glorious day. Now, who wouldn't want to live in a place that is free from sorrow, that is free from sickness, that is free from disappointment and discouragement and every bit of suffering and then free from all sin? Death is the natural means by which God releases us from the wretchedness of this life and ushers us to the glories of the next life. For the believer, there is never a reason for you to fear death. 
As Paul said in Philippians 1.23, he says, For I am in a strait betwixt two, having a desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better, he says. The departure that Paul is speaking of there is death. And he's literally waiting at a death sentence. He's not saying that he has a death wish, that he just can't wait to be done with it, that he's going to throw himself off a cliff. But that he longs to be with the Lord, he says. Believers should long for heaven like a sick man longs to be healed, or a hungry man longs to be fed, or a thirsty man longs for a drink of water. It is good to have a heavenly perspective because that is what believers are promised. You're promised a home in heaven if you know Jesus Christ as your Savior. Having a heavenly perspective will help us have the proper ambition and the proper motivation in this life. So you need to have a heavenly perspective. But secondly, we must have an eager anticipation. We must have an eager anticipation. Again, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and notice what we read in verses 6 through 8. 2 Corinthians 5, 6 through 8. Therefore, we are always confident, knowing that whilst we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith and not by sight. We are confident, I say, and willing rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. We must have an eager anticipation. Now, this is the height of heavenly anticipation. There's so much for believers to look forward to when we think about heaven. Who wouldn't want to look forward to having a glorified body? Who wouldn't be excited about never getting sick again? Who wouldn't be excited about never again having pain? Who wouldn't be excited about never again having to see the doctor? Who wouldn't be excited about never having to put on glasses again? Sign me up for that, right? Who wouldn't be excited about never having to take any more medication? Never getting tired. The list goes on and on and on. It's a no-brainer, right? A couple of weeks ago, I overheard Lily. She was telling Elijah what heaven is going to be like. And how we're going to have a mansion in heaven. And what I thought would get him excited, to my surprise, actually got him a little concerned. As I was listening to their conversation they were having in the living room, I heard him ask, he said, are we going to be able to bring our home to heaven? And Lily doubled down and told him that our home is staying here, but we're getting a better home in heaven, she said. And I couldn't figure out why this bothered him so much until he explained how much he, how much he would miss his own room and all of his toys. I mean, who wouldn't want to bring your toys with you to heaven, right, buddy? Who would Buzz Lightyear play with? Although, if you've ever seen Toy Story, they have some fun play them, playing with themselves, don't they? All those little creatures come to life on their own when you're not watching he doesn't understand everything quite yet, but he's getting so close to getting the message of, of the gospel in heaven. But we pray with him every day, and Lord willing, he'll understand the message soon enough. But it is true that God has promised every new believer, every believer, a new home in heaven along with our glorified bodies. And what makes these gifts so wonderful is that they are perfect. They're perfect. Everything we have here on earth is imperfect. 
It has a shelf life. There's an expiration date attached to it. Everything eventually shows signs of wear and tear. The perfection of heaven guarantees that there will be no wear. There will be no decay. There will be nothing expiring. The mansion the Lord is preparing for you will not have plumbing issues down the road. It'll never need a new roof. The windows will never need to be replaced. There will never not be endless projects that will need to get done because it will be perfect. Heaven is going to be so wonderful. And with all these, these wonderful gifts that we have promised to us as believers, the true joy of heaven is not the glorified body. It's not the mansion in heaven. It's not every other little gift that we're going to get. But the true joy of heaven is Jesus. Amen. He's the joy. Look at verse number 8 again here in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. He says, We are confident, I say, and willing rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Not to be present with our glorified bodies, not to be present in our new mansion in heaven, not to be present with anything else, but he says present with the Lord. Paul was not eagerly anticipating heaven because he knew he's going to receive a glorified body when anyone tries to throw a stone at him, it's just going to bounce off him like he's Superman. He's not excited about a mansion that he's going to finally be able to have and not live in a tent everywhere that he goes. He's filled with joy at the thought of being present with the Lord. Now, as much as we're going to enjoy our heavenly blessings, our hearts and minds are, are going to be so focused on giving Christ praise that I don't believe we're going to take too much notice of everything else. Here on earth, we may struggle at times to give more attention to the gifts rather than the giver of the gifts. But in heaven, everything is going to be different. Our joy, our desire, even our eternal focus will be to give praise to the one that has redeemed us and has made us complete in him. And this is why believers have such an eager anticipation for heaven. Because when we recognize what Paul recognized here in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, nothing at all comes close to comparing to the presence of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Look again at what we read in verse number six. He says, therefore, we are always confident, knowing that whilst we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. The word therefore at the beginning of that verse points back to the first five verses of the chapter, which explains why the believer can be confident always in the face of death, because the believer knows there is a day coming when we're going to shed these bodies of mortality and put on immortality. The confidence that believers ought to have about heaven is intended to be constant. Again, he says in verse number six, therefore we are always confident. He doesn't say we're confident only when life is going good. We're not just confident when the Lord's blessings are just flowing freely upon us. He says we are always confident. And he's just described in the first four chapters of how he's being receiving death threats how he's being persecuted and oppressed and cast down all of these things are happening and he says in light of all of that with all of that day after day after day he says we are always confident always confident knowing that while we are at home in the body we are absent from the lord again he's not looking to die but he was also acknowledging that there was nothing worthy in comparison to God to cling to here in this life. He understood that should he remain here on earth, he was going to serve the Lord. And he would even tell Timothy 
that he would be ready to go to heaven when that work was complete. Listen to what we read in 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verses 6 through 8. 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verses 6 through 8. He says, For I am now ready to be offered, and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day, and not to me only, but unto all them also that love his appearing. Now some believers, and you've probably heard this expression before, some believers can be so heavenly minded that they're no earthly good. And that is not at all what I'm suggesting. Don't live with your head in the clouds completely forgetting about what God has called you to do here on earth. We should have such a joy and such an excitement about what God has promised us as believers in heaven, but we should also understand that the Lord still has us here for a reason. And that reason is to faithfully serve him until he calls us home. Whether through his return or through death, either way, we're to be faithfully serving him. We're to be faithfully evangelizing. We're to be faithfully soul winning. We're to be faithfully sharing the gospel at home and out and abroad as much as we can until the Lord calls us home. It is true that the reality for every believer is that when we're absent from the body, that we are present with the Lord. And that when we are at home in the body, as he says there in verse number six, we are absent from the Lord. But the beautiful part is that we have blessed times of fellowship and communion with the Lord through prayer and through reading his word. And the Holy Spirit within us makes those times truly fulfilling. But even in that, there is still a sense within us that something is missing while we're here. The psalmist declared in Psalm 42 and verses 1 and 2, he says, As the heart, and that's the deer, not your heart, your organ. As the heart panteth after the water brooks, so panteth my soul after thee, O God. My soul thirsteth for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? As believers, there is a desire that comes upon us, realizing that, as the song says, this world is not our home. We're just a passing through. We long for something so much greater and so much better, as the Bible tells us about Abraham, who longed for a city whose builder and maker was God. Hebrews, 13, Hebrews 11 verse 13 tells us of the Old Testament saints who recognized this truth. It says, These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them far off, and were persuaded of them, and embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. They longed to be with God, the Bible says. They knew that as good as life could be here on this earth, nothing would compare to the glories of being in the presence of God for all eternity in heaven. And that's why they longed for it, even though it was so far away from them. That is why Paul reaffirms his confidence here in verse number 8. And he says again, he says, We are confident, I say, and willing, rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. This is why he didn't fear death. And why no believer should fear death for that matter. Verse 7, I think, is the key as to how to make sure that we are still useful to God here on earth, knowing what awaits us in the next life. It says, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Walking by faith is how believers can have fellowship with God and faithfully serve him. We know that heaven is true. We know that for every single believer, it is our eternal home. But we also understand that God still has us here on earth for a reason. And that reason is to proclaim his gospel and to lead sinners to salvation. Notice third, the believer's motivation. The believer's motivation. Look at what it says in verses 9 and 10 here in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. The believer's motivation. Wherefore we labor, that whether present or absent, we may be accepted of him. 
For we, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. What is it that motivates us to serve the Lord? It may be different for each person. But notice what, that Paul never mentions any of the heavenly rewards as to what motivates him to serve the Lord. He never mentions any sort of praise of men. He doesn't mention wealth. He doesn't mention prestige. He doesn't mention power or social prominence or fame or authority or anything of that nature. The believer's greatest motivation, his highest goal, should be to please the Lord. Again, he says in verse number 9, whether we labor, that whether present or absent, he said, wherefore we labor, sorry, that whether present or absent, we may be accepted of him. Not that we'll eventually get our glorified body, or not that we'll get this wonderful mansion in heaven, or not that anything else. He says that we may be accepted of him. The idea is to please God with all that he's doing. What truly sets us apart is that we're able to seek to please the Lord in all aspects of life. I want you to listen to what we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 4 in verses 3 through 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 4 verses 3 through 5. The Bible says, "But with me it is a very small thing that I should be judged of you or of man's judgment. Yea, I judge not mine own self, for I know nothing by myself." Yet am I not hereby justified, but he that judgeth me is the Lord. Therefore judge nothing before the time until the Lord come, who both will bring to light the hidden things of darkness and will make manifest the counsels of the hearts, and then shall every man have praise of God. One of the main problems that was plaguing the Corinthian church, and quite frankly, churches today as well, is that we're looking for reasons to judge one another unrighteously. We're looking for reasons to judge one another unrighteously. What Paul was telling them here is that their opinion of him didn't matter one bit. Say whatever you want to say about me, he says. Ridicule me, make fun of me, doesn't matter. He could care less. Because his goal was not to please the people that he was preaching to, but to please God. The Lord has called me to be a servant. And I wish that I could tell you that I don't allow the opinions of other people to bother me, but I'd be lying if I said that they didn't. At the end of the day, each of us are going to be accountable to God. And this is what we read in verse number 10. We're all going to have to stand before him, and we're not going to stand before a panel of men here on earth. We're going to stand before the almighty God, the creator of the universe. He is the one that we're going to be accountable to one day. The Lord has used that reality in my life He's used that reality to keep me from saying things that I know I'd regret. There are plenty of times. There are plenty of times where my flesh wants to lash out and to give people a piece of my mind. On the inside, if you could hear it, I'm screaming. But nothing's coming out over here. And you know, as I think about it, when my flesh is wanting to cry out, I tell myself, oh, you would love. It would be so great to just put this person in their place. Just let them have it. They have it coming. And I know, oh man, it'll feel so good for about five minutes. 
for about five minutes. Because after that, you know that you wish you could go back and put all those words back in your mouth. There are definitely battles worth fighting. There are definitely things that are worth standing up for. But what I found is that any time you're around a large group of people, there are going to be a, a lot of differing opinions. And if I let everything that is said get to me, I'll never get out of bed in the morning. It doesn't matter what I'm called. It doesn't matter how people look at me. It doesn't matter what people say about me. All that matters is that I'm faithfully serving the Lord, doing what he's called me to do. After all, if Christ was mocked, if he was ridiculed, if he was beaten and eventually crucified, why should any servant of the Lord expect anything different? Who am I to all of a sudden take offense at all the mocking and ridiculing and all the opinions and all the negative comments that are made to me if worse was done to my Savior? What makes me any different? If anything, Whatever ill will any of you can say about me, I probably had deserved to have much worse said about me. Who am I? And this is what Paul is saying here. It isn't some self-righteous attitude that he's refusing to submit to scrutiny or judgment. He's not saying, well, who are you to judge me? He's saying, judge me all day if you want to. It means nothing. Because the one I'm really striving to please and the one I'm going to be accountable to one day is not you or not the church or not any of these people, but the one that I'm serving with my whole heart, my Savior, Jesus Christ. So as long as at the end of the day, I find favor in his eyes, I don't care what any of you have to say. All he's saying is that all the judgment that is going to be received is going to be received is reserved for a higher court, he says. Because he says, he that judgeth me is the Lord. God is the final judge that every single one of us will appear before. Therefore, we should walk in such a way that is worthy of him unto all pleasing. The believer's motivation. Fourth, I want you to notice the believer's devotion. The believer's devotion. Look at verses 9 and 10 again. It says, wherefore we labor that whether present or absent, we may be accepted of him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that every one may receive the things done in his body, according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. Right in the middle of verse number nine, we read the words, it says, whether present or absent. What this is telling us is that there is no middle ground where we can take a break. There is no middle ground where we get to take a pass. There is no middle ground where we get to do whatever we want to do without any sort of repercussions. Our devotion to God, he's saying, should be all-encompassing. In the previous four chapters, Paul has talked about how his life has basically teetered back and forth from the brink of disaster. In all that he's experienced, he continues to state that all of his sufferings, every terrible thing that he has experienced, he says, it's basically... A drop in the bucket compared to what joy he is going to experience when he is in the presence of Christ in heaven. And that is why he continues to serve the Lord. 
That is why he doesn't get discouraged, even when the odds seem to be continually stacked against him. His devotion to Christ doesn't waver because he has come to understand that even if he does end up losing his life here on earth, he will wake up to be in the presence of his Savior. And listen to how he said it in Romans chapter 14 and verses, 17, verses 7 and 8. Romans 14, verses 7 and 8. He says, For none of us liveth to himself, and no man dieth to himself. For whether we live, we live unto the Lord, and whether we die, we die unto the Lord. Whether we live, therefore, or die, we are the Lord's. Are we devoted to Christ at all times? Or are we devoted to him only when it is convenient? Only when people are watching? Only when we're in church? When we're selective with our devotion to Christ, we're failing to acknowledge that he is our ultimate judge. When we're devoted for the sake of others taking notice, we're acting as if they're the ones that we're going to one day be accountable to. And we want to make sure that we at least impress them enough so that when we're accountable to them, they're going to look upon us and say, you know what? Every time I saw him, he was looking the part. Every time I saw him, he had his hymnal open and he was singing out with gusto. Every time I saw him, he had his Bible open and he was following right along with the preacher. He looks the part, he acts the part. By golly, if it was up to me, he's in. But we're not accountable to each other, are we? We're accountable to one, and that is God, the judge of the universe, the one by whom we're not going to hide anything from. So whether present or absent, he says, we labor that we may be accepted of him. You're not working out your salvation, but he's saying you're working out. You're showing that you're saved by what you're doing. When we're selective with that, we're telling Christ that we're not accountable to him, but we're accountable to everyone else. Wherefore we labor, that whether present or absent, he says, we may be accepted of him. When we're devoted for the sake of others taking notice, we're acting as if they're the ones that, are gonna, that we're going to be accountable to we're not serving Christ out of a sense of duty and obligation, but we should be serving him out of a desire to please him. Don't be focused on trying to get God to notice you. Just make serving him who you are, and the rest of it will take care of itself. The Christian life is not a popularity contest. The Christian life is a life of devotion to Christ demonstrated through your faithful servant. Driving our motivation should be the truth that we find in verse number 10. Look at verse number 10 again. He says, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. Every believer will have to one day stand before Christ and be judged for the things that we have done while here on earth. And this has nothing to do with our salvation. You're saved as you stand before the judgment seat of Christ. But it has only to do with the works that we've done for Christ while here on earth. There is a lot that we may be doing, claiming to be done for Christ. But in reality, we're doing these things for selfish reasons. All of this is going to be exposed when we appear before Christ at the judgment seat. The judgment seat of Christ is where believers are rewarded for their service for Christ. We either receive rewards or we remain empty-handed. Either way, the Bible says we're still in heaven. Now, I don't say this to discourage anyone from faithfully serving the Lord or give them a free pass saying, you don't have to do anything because once you're saved... You're going to be saved no matter what. 
So just relax, go play golf, do, do something that's exciting to you. Don't worry about sharing the gospel. Don't worry about even living like you're saved. Just do whatever you want because nothing can change the fact that you're now a child of God. That's not what I'm saying. And honestly, the Holy Spirit living inside of you would make your life miserable if you tried to fight living in the will of God anyways. But what I am saying is that there is a new desire in you as a believer to go and to actively serve and please the one who has saved you. You don't want to stand before Christ at the judgment seat of Christ and, and have that shame and humiliation because you've got nothing to show forth from all the time that you were here on earth living as a child of God. How would you feel if you had to stand before Christ empty-handed and to say that you did nothing for him here in this life even though you were saved for 30, 40, 50, or even 60 years? Who would want to disappoint the one who took our place upon the cross, who paid the full price of all of our sin and made it possible to have everlasting life and joys in heaven simply through believing in him? Who wants to disappoint Christ? I'm not trying to guilt you into serving Christ either. But sometimes it is important for us to have a reminder of who it is that we're serving and what he's done for us. You're serving the one who loves you more than you can ever love yourself. You're serving the one who knows you better than you can ever know yourself. So serve him with all of your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. Don't give him lip service and think that you can flatter your way into receiving a reward from him. He knows everything there is to know about you. He knows your thoughts, and that's a scary thing. He knows your intentions. He knows your motivations. He knows the things that are happening in the deep recesses of your mind. I'm terrified at times when Ruthie will look at me and know that something is troubling me and I'm putting on this brave face trying to pretend like there's nothing wrong. She'll look at me and it's like I've got it written all over my face and I'm thinking, how do you know? How do you know? God, what did you give this woman that she can see everything there is know about me? It's terrifying. It's more than that, buddy. It's terrifying at times. In a good way. Even when I'm trying to hide something to protect her that I don't need her to know about it because I don't want her to worry about it. She just reads it all over my face and it's just frustrating. Not in a bad way. But think about what it's like for the Lord to look upon you. She has to ask me what's wrong. She can see that something's wrong in my countenance, in my face, in everything about me. There's, there's something wrong. The Lord can look at me and say, I know exactly what's going on in your life. I don't even need to ask what's wrong. I can see it. I know it. I knew it was coming. And all along, I was trying to get you to rely upon me so that you wouldn't be in the situation that you're in right now, feeling as miserable and shameful as you are. Who would want to disappoint him? Anything you do for self-glorification, as good as you might think it is, is not something that Christ is in the business of rewarding. In Colossians 3, 23 and 24, the Bible says, And whatsoever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not unto men, knowing that of the Lord you shall receive the reward of the inheritance, for you serve the Lord Christ. Remember who you're serving. Is it bad to receive praise of men? Of course not. But if that is your motivation then you're serving for all the wrong reasons. Don't volunteer, don't serve to get people to notice you. Do it because you're seeking to please the Lord and you're seeking to bring honor to his name. Listen to how this judgment is described in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 11 through 15. It says, For other foundation can no man lay than that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. 
Now, if any man build upon this foundation, gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble, every man's work shall be made manifest for the day shall declare it because it shall be revealed by fire. And the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. If any man's work abide, which he hath built thereupon, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss. But he himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire. This is describing the judgment seat of Christ. If you're there, you're saved. But believers are building upon the foundation of Jesus Christ. You're building upon your salvation through your service for him. All your work, everything that you do during the time that you're saved is going to be tried at the judgment seat of Christ. And only those things that we've really done for his, for his service and for his glory will stand. And he describes those things as gold, silver, and precious stones. Everything that was done out of selfish ambition, no matter what you claimed it was, is going to be burned up. And he describes that as the wood, hay, and the stubble. We're all going to stand before Christ one day. How that goes is entirely up to how we utilize our time now. Spend your days seeking to please Christ and do it by witnessing. Do it by evangelizing. Do it by ministering to the needs of others. Do it by sharing the gospel, supporting fellow believers, and building for eternity. How are we living our lives? Are we walking by faith and building for eternity or are lives marked by selfish ambitions? We read in 2 Peter chapter, five, or chapter 1, verses 5 through 10, it said, And beside this, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, and to virtue knowledge, and to knowledge temperance, and to temperance patience, and to patience godliness, and to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness charity. For if these things be in you and abound, they make you that you shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But he that lacketh these things is blind and cannot see afar off, and hath forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. Wherefore the rather, brethren, give diligence to make your calling and election sure, for if you do these things, ye shall never fall. Remember who it is that you're living for, who it is that you're seeking to please, and see to it that Christ is the one who receives the glory in your life. Would you bow with me in prayer this morning? Heavenly Father, I know, Lord, that as we're here in your house this morning, Lord, every single one of us has, Lord, failed to walk by faith. Lord, maybe we've showed glimpses of that and we've had seasons where things were looking as they should be. But Lord, we're prone to wander. We're prone, Lord, to give in to selfish ambitions and to do things, Lord, that we feel is right in our own eyes. I ask, Lord, for your help. Lord, as we go through life and struggle at times to do what is right, Lord, keep us back into the center of your will. Allow the Holy Spirit, Lord, to really convict us when we fall into the pattern of doing things, Lord, that are only for ourselves. Lord, may we understand who it is that we're serving and who it is that we're desiring to please. May you be the one who receives all honor and all glory in our lives. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.